Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back to another bonus episode of what I'm calling Wonder Woman Wednesday. This week's profile came as a request from Twitter user Cute Weird History and a longtime fan of the pod, Val. When trying to figure out just who and what I should cover for Women's History Month, they both put in a vote for Zora Neale Hurston. So in this bonus episode of Civics and Coffee, I am diving into the life, the legend, the mysterious Zora Neale Hurston. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do it. Zora Neale Hurston is infamous as an author who came to fame during the Harlem Renaissance and who hobnobbed with the influential poet Langston Hughes. But Hurston's life began way before she traveled to New York, and though she would recreate her own story, the original tale is just as fascinating. Born in Alabama in 1891, Zora Neale Hurston was the fifth of eight children born to her parents, John and Lucy Ann Hurston. Her father was a sharecropper, preacher, and eventual carpenter, and her mother worked as a teacher. At the age of three, her family moved from Alabama to a small Florida town, Eatonville. Eatonville was exceptional in that it was incorporated, populated, and managed by black Americans. Settled in 1887 after the Civil War, Eatonville proved to be pivotal in instilling in Zora a sense of pride and confidence that would follow her throughout her life. Hurston was so enamored with the town of her youth that when she published her memoir, Dust Tracks on a Road, she would state Eatonville and not Alabama as her place of birth. Her early education was at a Baptist boarding school in Jacksonville, but shortly after her mother's death in 1904, Zora's father ceased paying her tuition and she was disenrolled. Committed to continuing her education, Hurston enrolled in Morgan College, the high school subset of Morgan State University in Maryland. In order to qualify for free tuition, Hurston claimed to be born in 1901, making her 16 and not 26. The birth year of 1901 would remain in place throughout her life, including her gravestone. It was in school Zora first noticed her fascination with anthropology. Defined as the study of human societies and cultures and their development, Hurston was committed to unearthing and sharing the culture of black Americans and would spend a vast amount of time traveling to collect folk songs, stories, and histories of the black community. In 1918, Zora enrolled into Howard University, a historically black college. Howard is where her literary talent first came to light when she wrote the short story John Redding Goes to Sea in 1921. The story was published in the university's literary magazine, The Stylus. While attending Howard, Zora co-founded her first publication, a university newspaper called The Hilltop. After earning her associate's degree, Zora continued her education by enrolling at Barnard College, the women's college under Columbia University. She further developed her passion and study of anthropology, becoming a mentee to famed anthropologist Franz Boas, and earned her bachelor's degree in anthropology in 1928 
at the age of 37. Zora moved to New York in 1925 at the behest of a literary agent and found herself in the middle of an explosion of black creativity and artistic expression, the Harlem Renaissance. Black creators were under pressure to present black art in a, quote, positive light, which was code for well-behaved, well-spoken, and using proper English. Some writers of the Harlem Renaissance rejected this idea and decided to go in a different direction, creating their own periodical, Fire. Though only one issue ever made it to the stands, it featured works by Zora and Langston Hughes, among others, and tackled controversial topics such as homosexuality and interracial relationships. In 1926, Zora began fieldwork for her anthropology mentor, measuring skulls and collecting stories, and went on the road for six months traveling into the Deep South in her quest to memorialize black folklore. This was important work to Zora, and she would continuously put herself at risk, traveling alone in some of the most dangerous places in the United States, evading the Ku Klux Klan, sleeping in her car, all to capture stories and traditions she felt only she was sufficiently qualified to gather. In Hurston's opinion, white people could not be trusted to get to the heart of the black cultural experience, as black Americans would never fully reveal themselves to a white inquisitor. During her research expedition, Zora learned about and became interested in hoodoo, a combination of religious practices, traditions, and beliefs originated by slaves. Hoodoo would become a lifelong passion for Hurston, who would travel to the Caribbean in an effort to study and learn more. Her anthropological lens influenced her writing, and in 1925, Zora won two prizes and two honorable mentions for her work at a dinner sponsored by Opportunity magazine. And while she published four novels during her lifetime, it was in 1936 that her most infamous work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, was published. The reception for the book was cold, to say the least, by fellow black creators who felt the novel was overtly sexualized and furthered the stereotype of black ignorance due to Hurston's choice to use, quote, country vernacular. On a personal front, Zora would marry three times, but never find a lasting companion. Hurston admitted to being weary of marriage, saying she was afraid it would, quote, widen her hips and narrow her life, end quote. As I've mentioned, Zora was deeply committed to her work and was worried marriage would take her off the road and out of the creative space. Hurston was someone who bucked the trends of the time. In the 30s and 40s, women were expected to get married, have children, and take care of the home. She refused to follow that mold and instead spent her life living on her own terms, despite what it may have cost her. In 1934, she established a dramatic art school based on, quote, pure Negro expression, end quote, at Bethune-Cookman University, historically black college in Daytona Beach, Florida. In 1938 and 1939, Hurston found work with the Works Progress Administration under the Federal Writers Project, where she worked to add to the collection of Florida cultural history. As part of her work with the WPA, Zora made a series of recordings of folk songs she'd learned. Here is a snippet from one of those recordings. My name is Zora Neale Hurston, and uh, I'm going to sing a gambling song uh, that I collected at Boston, Florida. That's the term time, the term time still there. And the men are playing a game called George's Skin. That's the, the most favorite gambling game among the workers of the South. Hurston was also an established playwright, though many of her plays went unpublished during her lifetime. 
probably her most famous play, Mulebone, was a collaboration with then-friend Langston Hughes. Unfortunately, the collaboration on this project would spell the end of her friendship with Hughes, and in the summer of 1939, Hurston would give up on the collaboration and join the faculty of North Carolina College for Negroes, now known as North Carolina Central University, as a drama instructor. In 1948, Hurston was falsely accused of molesting the son of a former landlady, who was 10, and his two friends. She was arrested and brought up on five charges, one count of assault in the second degree, one count of placing a child in such a situation as likely to impair morals, and three counts of sodomy. While able to prove that she was out of the country during the dates of the alleged incidents, Hurston was nevertheless forced to appear in criminal court to make her case. As it was being handled in the juvenile courts, the records were sealed. However, news of the charges were leaked to the black press, who tore into Hurston and wrote all the disgusting details of the charges without acknowledging her plea of innocence. The betrayal by her community hit Hurston especially hard and eventually prompted her decision to leave Harlem once the charges were dropped in March of 1949. Being crucified in the press was the beginning of the end for Zora. Unable to make further income from her book sales, Hurston was forced to take other jobs in order to make ends meet, including working as a domestic for a white family. After being rediscovered thanks to a news article profiling her contributions to the Harlem Renaissance and sharing her situation as a maid, Hurston saw a bit of a resurgence, fielding offers to write pieces for magazines and newspapers. Hurston continued to make waves in her forced retirement, arguing against Brown v. Board of Education and writing that the New Deal economic policies created a dependency on government for black Americans. In 1959, Zora suffered a stroke and was forced to enter the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She passed away on January 28, 1960, from hypertensive heart disease. Due to her lack of an estate or remaining family, Hurston was buried in an unmarked grave in Fort Pierce, Florida. Zora's grave would continue to remain unmarked until 1973, when author Alice Walker, on a journey to discover more about the mysterious figure from the Harlem Renaissance, located the site and paid for a stone marker. Walker later published a short essay in 1975 titled In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, which triggered a new appreciation of the long-forgotten artist. Today, Hurston is more widely appreciated and celebrated, including an annual festival in her honor in her claimed hometown of Eatonville, Florida. Although she failed to achieve the recognition and acclaim she deserved during her lifetime, her work stands as a testament to the creative spirit of the Harlem Renaissance and serves as an example of a woman being unapologetically herself. Before I sign off on this bonus episode, I want to give a heartfelt thanks to Anne-Marie for supporting the podcast through Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you so much, fellow podcaster. If you haven't checked out her pod yet, Armchair Historians, go ahead and do so now. If you'd like to learn more on how you can support the show, please visit civicsandcoffee.com for more information. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.